Hey, Kevin. It's mutiny. <laughs> why is it mutiny? Because we're actually going to reverse roles this week. That's true. Explain why. We're reversing roles because we are talking about law and order, and it's something that I'm a little bit more obsessed with than you are, and I would rather answer the questions than ask them. Yeah, I actually can't really contribute too much to law and order. Now, Laura and Toby are away because it's school vacation week around here, and we thought this would be a good time to try something a little new, bring back some of our favorites. Bring back some of our favorite guest panelists, bring on a special guest panelist, and talk about something that we really love talking about, and, spoiler alert, we might be talking about a lot more in the future, we will say. But, you know, some things aren't going to change. First of all, we can still tell you that we'd love for you to help out our podcast by shopping right through our website. Go to the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. It takes you to Amazon. You do all the regular shopping you normally do. It doesn't cost you anything else, and a little bit comes right back into the studio here. A little bit comes right back in the studio, and that support goes to help us pay for the content we make, including maybe a special future podcast about Law & Order. We will see. Now, even though he is away, something else remains the same. <laughs> Here is Toby Ball with the latest in the things that were purchased this week through the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Purchased by you, our listeners. Roll the roll the thing. I can't believe I'm running the show next and you still won't let me touch any of the buttons. Nope. <laughs> Obagi New Derm FX starter system. Normal slash dry. Hydroquinone free. One Dora 15 inch dual use curly styled clip and claw ponytail hair extension synthetic hairpiece 130 grams with a jaw slash claw clip. Six chestnut brown. Zhao Gulan tea. About 100% gymnostemma pentaphylum. Premium grade fresh loose leaf longevity tea, about a hundred grams. Okay, you can't be doing that. Okay, why don't you do your next one? Two guards per package, 18 inches length times 5.5 inches width. Furniture protectors, best protection from pets scratching their claws. I'm Kevin Flynn, and this is Crime Writers On, a podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally television shows. Today, we're breaking format for a special episode on something that we know is near and dear to most of our listeners' hearts. That's right. It's a whole show about NBC's mega franchise, Law and Order. We'll be focusing mostly on what in this house is known as Original Recipe, the first series in what's become a joggernaut rerun franchise a full 26 years after it first hit the air in 1990. Laura's on vacation this week, and we're giving Toby a bit of a break as well, but our special guest panelists will not disappoint, we promise. So joining me now is my true crime co-author and real-life wife, 
Rebecca Lavoie. Did I say that right? Rebecca Lavoie? I can't wait to be you, Kevin Flynn. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And you will see how difficult it is. <laughs> and returning to our panel this week is a lawyer who literally has been trained to kill people. Retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and JAG lawyer from the Task and Purpose podcast. Welcome back, James Wyrick. Hey, Wyrick. Thank you for having me here, Kevin. And finally, a brand new voice to our show. He's a longtime public radio reporter and host, a prolific blogger, and the author of the new book, Dead Presidents. His name is Brady Carlson. Brady, welcome to our little panel. Thanks for having me, but I'm curious why you didn't ask whether I'd been trained to kill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, have you? I hope you never have to find out. I'll just say that. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, I do want to ask about your qualifications, but other than maybe or maybe not having uh, lethal hands, have you ever written about crime? What do you know about crime? I know mostly about the assassinations of presidents, which are unspeakably horrible national tragedy crimes. They're sort of criminal. Qualifies. Totally qualifies. Doesn't pull at my heartstrings. No, No, you don't see a true crime book about John Wilkes Booth. It'd be hard to do rip from the headlines on Law & Order about an assassination. <laughs> An old-timey Law & Order. That's about the only spinoff they haven't done yet, right? Ah, get yeah. the paddy wagon. Yeah, right, I, yeah. right. Well, Law & Order 19th Century Victims <laughs> Unit. And I understand that you have a point of view about my long-term marital dispute with Rebecca over the song Purple Rain. I do. I mean, do we have the next hour to go through my <laughs> obsession with this? Uh, 20 seconds. Yeah, you can give it. We're going to cut it out. Okay. Prince is one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and the guitar solo in Purple Rain is one of his greatest greatest guitar solos. That's my short, short answer. But it's unbelievably good. It's four, The song is four chords. It's, to me, it's just a setup for a gigantic, awesome guitar solo. Okay. You know, on the internet, you'd think that I said that I actually killed Prince with my own hands. <laughs> a lot of people came to your defense. That's fine. Yeah, that's because I'm right. Let's go to today's topic, which is Law and Order. Now, we're basically going to be trying to keep to the original series, what we call Original Recipe. That's what we call it. Other people call it the mothership, I've learned since. Yeah, uh, yeah. although it's probably hard to not veer off into SVU and some of the other ones. So many crossovers. But I want to start by going around the horn and finding out just where does your relationship with Law and Order start and what does it look like? So, Wyrick, do you remember when you first started watching Law and Order? Uh, yes, it's very early in the series where you, your major detectives were Mr. Big and Polly from Goodfellas. Paul Sorvino and Chris Noth. Yes, or North, the, Noth, yeah. the father of the lovely Mira Sorvino. So I go back to those days. I missed some in between, and I came back later, probably seven years ago. And Brady, how about you? I go back to about 1998 or 99. I started watching it at my then-girlfriend, now-wife's house because her grandpa watched it all the time, and I thought the promos were hilarious. They would always talk about ripped from the headlines with a Law & Order twist, and I wanted to find out what the twist was, and I kind (laughs) of got hooked on it to an embarrassing degree. We would actually schedule the week of reruns because we wanted to get all the A&E cable reruns, all the TNT reruns, the NBC original brand new premieres, all on videotape. It was all cross-referenced with an episode guide that I had gotten for my birthday. On top of all of that, I own the Jerry Orbach Broadway Tunes CD. Oh my God, that's deep. And on my wall is an autographed picture from Jerry Orbach wishing me a happy birthday. Nobody puts Brady in a corner. That, wow. Nobody. <laughs> nobody. So I'm kind of obsessed with Law & Order. Can we put that up on uh, Twitter? Oh yeah. So people know. It's, it's You're inspiring. an aficionado. Very, very much. And we should, we should also say Brady also has... Unlike the rest of us, like a real photographic pop culture memory. So, like, I may refer to Angie Harmon's character as Rizzoli. 
Uh, you know, but you bring, isn't she Isles? No, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she's Rizzoli. I'm not 100. Actually, I'm not 100 sure because I'm that bad with names. Brady's the opposite of that. He he has got a, like an encyclopedic memory for pop culture. Well, how did you get involved in Law and Order? I think that I've always been like a casual Law and Order viewer since the very very beginning. I was a casual viewer and really kind of realized it was a problem maybe about, I don't know, how old is my older son, uh, almost 15, when he was a baby and I would find myself watching the daytime reruns of episodes I had already seen dozens of times and yet continued to watch, even though I may have seen the same episode yesterday and I would still watch it if it were on today. And I realized I have a problem. Like, I love, love, love everything about this show. I am a franchise, broad consumer. I watch SVU. I loved Criminal Intent. The trial one, uh, the one about trials. Trial by jury. Trial by jury. That's the only one that I don't really remember that well. But I have like a deep and abiding relationship and really I felt like it was something I couldn't talk about for a long time. Well, you were ashamed of it? Well, the whole like rerun part until I did once and realized a lot of people are just like me. They have this like long term, deep and obsessive relationship with this show. Well, you know, the show started in 1990 and it ran for 20 years. It's the longest running hour long series in the history of television. And so there are so many episodes and right they're on so many different channels. I think a lot of people experience Law and Order through the reruns more so than the original first-run series when it was on the air, and the same thing with SVU. So, you know, there's a large canon of what Law & Order is. Now, of course, the show is literally half cop show and half courtroom drama. Why would a crazy premise like that, that formula, work for a TV show? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. It's based on an old show, I want to say from the 1950s, called Arrest and Trial. And the difference here is is that Arrest and Trial was one half cop show and one half defense attorney show. Oh, okay. So you'd spend the first half hour of the show following the cops as they found the suspect and then watch the second half of the show as a defense attorney figured out that the cops had once again gotten the wrong guy. Well, who do you root for in that? That's, that was the problem. That's why it didn't last 20 years. So Law & Order sort of took that half-and-half half idea and made it just about watching from the end of a crime to the end of a trial through the eyes of the criminal justice system, the police and the district attorney's office. So that way, then, you could kind of see how the whole story unfolded. And you could, you know, if you weren't necessarily into a cop drama, you could be more into the legal thriller or vice versa. And so there was a little something in it for everybody. I think that it really works because you have two shows in a show every single time. And the way that they do the story is there's usually some, you know, reason to kick it back to the cops, like, you know, halfway through the second half of the show, you know, it'd be very easy to have the first half be about the cops and the second half be about the prosecutors. But there's usually some, you know, intersection of the two. And there's an opportunity for like two different kinds of dialogue. The cops dialogue is written all the same way. I don't care who the cop is. And they have certain peculiarities in their delivery and, you know, certain catchphrases. And I think I'm pretty sure that Lenny Briscoe's like half of his lines were improvised. I'm not 100 percent sure, but they can't not be. But everyone's dialogue is sort of the same on the cop side and everyone's dialogue is sort of the same on the prosecutorial side. And then, of course, the wrangling with the defense attorneys and so forth. So you have like two interwoven textures and it just feels good together. And that sort of bouncing back and forth, it makes the hour go by very, very, very quickly, which is why it's so easy to to get sucked into a six-hour Law & Order marathon and forget to eat. I'll expand on that. I think 37.4% of each show is cops arguing with lawyers. 
doctors and lawyers <laughs> arguing with cops about who needs to do more and then going back to their respective camps and saying, I can't believe that son of a bitch needs me to do more, you know, ask more questions, or I can't believe that the cops think this is enough for probable cause. That's built in 13 minutes of every episode. Wyrick, do you think that the, so the chocolate in my peanut butter... Uh, format here is what makes it endearing? Oh, absolutely, because you have a long-term relationship with both sides that you always think that the cops have done enough. Come on, lawyers. You go do the courtroom stuff. Or you think if you are a Jack McCoy guy, you think oh, wait a second, you know, those cops got to get more. I mean, he's going to pull it through with a really great closing, but you got to give him a little more meat. Wyrick, does that conflict between the cops and the prosecutors, does that ring true for you um, when you were trying cases? Did you have, like, conflicts with the guys who investigated the cases that you were trying? Yeah, we're just a little more normal about it. We don't we don't quite fly off the handle with each other as much, but that wouldn't be as fun. So you can really break up this series into different eras based on some of the different cast members. But let's start with those first couple of years. We'll just say like that era ends when Michael Moriarty is replaced with Sam Waterston. And this is about the time when you come in and you start watching it. Isn't that little era of the show a completely different show in tone than the rest of the series was? I, I think so. I think just because of, of Jack, Jack's outrage or McCoy's outrage, you do have a different flavor to that show. And it also, I think, is a broad transition from the first two or three seasons really concentrate on almost an 80s version of New York City. That it was still this grimy place where, you know, every sack of garbage possibly had a human body in it. And later it, it turns into more financial crimes. At least that's that's the feel that I get. Brady, is that not for you the the turning point for for the rest of the series? Is it, it becomes a whole different show? It really does. It's a point where the show just naturally had found its voice by that point. But there had been enough turnover in the cast where they had really found the people who were meant to inhabit the roles of the lead detective, Jerry Orbach as Lenny Briscoe, and Sam Waterston as Jack McCoy, the executive assistant district attorney. I mean, the people who had come before that, I mean, Michael Moriarty was a fantastic lead for the legal thriller, but he was definitely a more sort of somber, a more almost obsessively thoughtful character. He was so emotionally tied up in being the man doing the right thing at all times, whereas Jack McCoy... You a firebrand. Yeah, yeah. Jack McCoy was a, both a firebrand, and, and he just made the scenes pop in a different way. And he was also willing to be not such a great guy. He was willing to bend the rules, sometimes completely break the rules, uh, whereas Ben Stone was never willing to do that. So, I mean... Ben Stone was almost a little too white bread for a show that needed somebody who was a little sassier. I sort of think of those first couple of years as more clinical, especially on the legal side. I feel like the cop side was grittier, as Wyrick said, but the legal side, it was sort of like there was the dirty part of the show and then the clean part of the show. And as soon as Jack McCoy comes on the scene, the legal side, it gets a little bit of the dirt from the dirty side and it gets so much more interesting. It seems like the show is kind of like Bill Belichick's Patriots. It's an ensemble and it doesn't matter except maybe for your quarterback. All the other players seem to be interchangeable and they do very well. It matters on rare occasions. And I know we'll talk about there were some like big flops in terms of replacement of occasional cast members. But yeah, I remember every time there would be like a big turnover, I would think like, oh, I'm never going to get used to this. And there I was three months later 
continuing to watch the show uh, exactly the same as I had before. In a way, what made the show last as long as it did was the turnover. I mean, it matters when you have a Sam Waterston or a Jerry Orbach sticking around for a decade or more. But a lot of what happened on the show was so formulaic that having different people inhabiting the roles, and I'm not just talking about the lead characters, the investigators and the district attorneys, but even the judges, you know, uh, an entire episode could turn on the fact that you had the really lenient judge Mm -hmm. who was willing to go along with whatever goofy idea Jack McCoy had versus the really hard-nosed judge who really didn't like Jack McCoy and thought he was a troublemaker. Right. That could change the entire outcome of the second half of an episode. Or the previous relationship that Jack McCoy had with with a defense attorney, which comes up over <laughs> which and is over. about every, which is about thirteen more minutes. So exactly. we, we just keep filling out that pie chart. Right? Exactly, and what? that really speaks to, I think, what a strong show it is because this isn't Dick York and Dick Sargent. We aren't just switching out one character. <laughs> you can't switch dicks, right? Exactly, not midstream. And <laughs> oh, okay, I got. There's a there's that. a Lenny Briscoe line in here. Dick switch. I think that happened with my second ex-wife. <laughs> or Munch. But <laughs> that the entire show was that strong that you could just put in a new lineup and it was kind of seamless. You might like different eras better, but it's still good. Now, especially in the beginning, there was really almost no focus on the characters' personal lives. It was strictly the work procedural. Did that affect the way that, Brady, you felt about each of the characters? Yeah, I mean, you couldn't really root for them as much because you didn't know a whole lot about them. You, you had just a little tiny clue here and there. But the idea was is that they were just representing the system as a whole, and so you weren't really supposed to get to know them. The, the point was supposed to be about the story. It wasn't until a few seasons in where they started to relax that a little bit, and while the focus of the show was almost never on the characters' personal lives, it did start to play in a little bit, and you could see why they were making some of the decisions that they did. Some of those past relationships Jack McCoy had had with some of his assistants and some of the oftentimes people who then went on to be the defense attorneys in the cases he was prosecuting Mm -hmm. or some of the crooked cops that Lenny Briscoe had worked with. Those all started to then come back to almost haunt them or at least come back to play in the series. And why, Rick, it was sort of like by bits and pieces we start seeing the characters develop. And of course, when you have somebody like, you know, Briscoe, who's on for season after season, all those little bits do add up. Oh, absolutely. That, that I think those make everything better. And they did it incrementally. At least, I'm not exactly sure about this, but it seemed that they kind of replaced cast members piecemeal, so you still had a certain amount of um, follow-through. Continuity. Yes. Now, to me, the lack of delving into the personal lives of the cops and the lawyers, this is the singular thing about this part of the franchise. SVU is arguably only about the characters and their personal lives. And then, of course, there's all the rape. You know, it's a whole <laughs> show about still that. Still the crime stuff, uh, the law and the Still the, the order. crime stuff, lots more rip from the headlines, lots more sensational stuff. But the characters on that show are primarily driven always in every episode by something that's going on in their personal lives. And I think in some ways, even though SVU, of course, is a long, long time juggernaut show, it does limit your ability to, I don't know, have it go on forever. I really feel like Law & Order could still 
still be on the air. It could be on the air in perpetuity because there was it's that. It's like a Doctor Who. Yeah, a little bit of a distance between you and the people that you were watching so that you didn't feel like they had an arc and now it's over and now the show is stale or now this is over. I mean, poor Olivia Benson. What that poor woman has been through for the last whatever years and, you know, poor Elliot, you know, scene chewer and his like wife and daughter histrionics. It's like it is the textual difference for me. I'm not saying it's, it's you know, that, that SVU is a weaker show. It is a weaker show in certain ways. But for me, that's what makes Law & Order such a strong show is that little bit of a distance between you and the home life of I mean, the cops. See, that's where you're wrong. People can. Oh my! What? Back up! You just told Rebecca she's wrong. <laughs> well, I I just think people can keep hitting on Mariska Hargitay for all of time, and then Ice T can just kind of sit back and say cool things like, "Oh man, <laughs> I'm gonna go so, pull, so, I'm gonna go pull the luds from that payphone and get me a right. warrant." Tell it to right. the judge. Tell it to the judge. <laughs> and just reminding us all that we're not nearly as cool as him. Exactly. Talking about SVU for a second, just dive down that path. Brady, if you're going to take Law & Order and spin it off and decide, well, the tone of this is going to be more personal, does that indicate that maybe Dick Wolf thought there was a flaw in the original recipe? I think he thought that there was a different audience that was going to respond to He wanted to, to go SVU. extra crispy. He wanted to okay. go with the people who were watching soap operas during the day and drag them in on weeknights. He wanted the ladies. He, he, wanted, he wanted a little bit of the lady action. <laughs> I mean, SVU was primarily driven in its first few seasons by the sexual chemistry between Mariska Hargitay and uh, Elliot Stabler, you know, uh, Olivia Benson's partner. There was a lot, and you forget this now, because in later years, you know, he's obviously gone from the show now, in later years, it was very much like they were just like, you know, good partners, friends. But there were some episodes where things were so fraught with tension between the two of them of like a chemistry nature that there was this whole episode arc about how they had to be examined by like the police psychiatrist because they were so codependent and they would do things for each other as partners that no one else would do. Definitely for me, always like written for the ladies when I sort of look at the dialogue and the sort of the long stares, you know, in a way that Law & Order wasn't. But I mean, I think if we're going to talk about the personal life thing, criminal intent is the one that was 100 percent about personalities anyway of the characters, I think even more so than SVU, and it, it worked in a completely different way. Well, let's, let's come back to the characters on, on Original Recipe for a second. Now, I'm going to throw out a comparison here to another TV crime show, Cop Show, which aired at the same time, took place in New York, and also took place in the fictional 27th Precinct. I guess in New York, that's like 555 on the telephone, <laughs> the 27th, the NYPD Blue. Mm-hmm. Now, think about you had Jerry Orbach's character, Briscoe, tough, smart detective, recovering alcoholic. Dennis Franz Sipowitz, tough, good detective, recovering, struggling alcoholic. Two really different characters, different, you know, performances. Dennis Franz won like four Emmy Awards for that character, very well deserved. They are very different. Completely different. Different shows. Yeah. I mean, but why is it that NYPD Blue doesn't stand the test of time? You don't see it on reruns. And Law and Order does. Because Lenny Briscoe is the cop of the ages. He's the cop from the 20s, and he's the cop from the 30s, and he's the cop from the 40s, and he's the cop from the. He's like the cop. He is the prototypical to me 
shoe leather, trench coat wearing detective. That is a timeless, ageless character. To me, Sipowitz was very much a product of that particular time, that sort of like angsty 90s. Personal demons. Exactly, exactly. Time. I mean, what do you agree with me, Brady? Absolutely. And I think the other thing about it, too, and this is something that I don't know whether this was a part of the original recipe's plan or not, but the great genius of not focusing on the personal lives of the characters is that the show does not lend itself to serialization in a way that NYPD Blue or any of the other Law & Order spinoffs do, which means that you go into each episode cold on a rerun and it doesn't matter. You don't have to know the characters because it's not about them. It's you don't about have to the have crime. Seen the previous you don't have to know what, next what happened last week on Law and Order. You can just go into that one self-contained episode and know everything that there is to know, and you'll be perfectly fine. And then you can watch six more hours of it, and you're CSI all CSI does a good job of that. Also, that yeah, there might be a continuing arc, but you can just pick up for that day, and you're fine. Right, absolutely. And CSI Miami, I don't think does it in the same way. <laughs> CSI Miami is clearly the SVU, right? <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah, oh no, David, well, David Caruso like left. Sorry about that. Let's That's just right. let's just for the record point out that I am now putting on my sunglasses like <laughs> yeah, David so Caruso. And you got to pull him off and say something snarky. <laughs> well, Caruso's one liner right before the credits, opening credits, are so different than Briscoe's. Right, Briscoe's things were like you know it was so ham fisted. The David Caruso one liners. Drive by Miami style. Exactly, and Briscoe sometimes he'll have his one liner, and I have to like walk out of the room and get a cup of coffee, and I'll be like, oh, that was really clever. <laughs> you know, like the other day we were watching an episode and, uh, you know, somebody That's had what been, a one-iron's actually that's for, yeah. What, yeah, he, 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 they arrive at the scene and a guy realizes he's got his head bashed in and they realize it's a golf club and he goes, oh, that's what a one-iron's for. And I literally, like, left the room, went downstairs, switched the laundry <laughs> and I was like, oh, that was a really good joke about golf. Briscoe is just, like, he's a thinker. Right. As opposed to going, well, that was a bad lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so ripped from the headlines was something that Law & Order brought, and it seemed like a promotional gimmick, but do you guys like it when you recognize the shadow of a real sensational news story in an episode? Wyrick, let's start with you. Yeah, you definitely do. You know, if you see a financial crime or, you know, if, if you see a particularly horrific, you know, New York crime, you kind of say like, oh, you know, that that's this. And I think that it's a good recognition device. Rebecca, what about you? I think it's a good opportunity to turn rip from the headlines cases into morality plays. And they very often, about halfway through the episode, you realize, oh, this is actually going to be completely different. Right, Brady? My favorite example of that is, as someone from Chicago, when they took the story of the guy who caught the foul ball in the Cubs playoff game, Steve Bartman, and they turned that into a New York Law & Order episode in which the guy who caught the foul ball gets killed, but it has nothing to do with the fact that he caught the foul ball. It's that some guy who had been wrongfully imprisoned for years and years turns into an actual criminal, if I'm remembering it right, and then murders this guy, and it's just this kind of random concurrence of events. That's very often the hook, is that the opening scene will be the rip from the headlines part, and then about 10 minutes in, it's a totally different show with a totally different premise. But, but not always. Now, I, I'm sure, I, I haven't seen this one, but I'm sure there was this episode of Law & Order where if I just said, here's the premise, a child beauty queen is found murdered, the parents are acting suspicious. That was an SVU. That was an SVU, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, you know that's what, like all SVUs. You know what ripped from the headline case that is and where that's supposed to go. Right. There was a recent episode of SVU that was very obviously about the Duggar family, mm-hmm. and it was like this big family, this big religious family, like all comes to New York to do like some promotional stuff, and then like 
the daughter ends up dead. And then there's this whole thing of like, is there like a sex scandal within the family? That's like textbook SVU. There's a recent SVU episode actually about the St. Paul's rape trial that happened right here in Concord, New Hampshire. And, you know, again, partially through the episode, even with SVU, they do always make that turn. I think it's a very, very intentional storytelling choice. Warwick, do you agree with Rebecca that when they do these rip from the headlines that sometimes it's the show's way of writing the wrong that happened in real life? Oh, yeah, they definitely do. Like, this is how this financial crime should have turned out, or there was a savings and loan, you know, scandal, but finally in in the show, they're going to get the Charles Keating. Don't you feel like that's Jack McCoy's job? Half of his dialogue in those episodes is saying the thing people who made the show think about the real-life case, you know? It is it is a violation of our most basic rights as human beings, that dot, 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 dot. Or in the, Absolutely. the infamous episode where Jack McCoy finds himself in a position to speak out against gay marriage because it was legal and then it was illegal. It was a marital privilege. That, marital privilege. Uh, well, didn't they have a civil union? Isn't that what they were arguing? No, they were married, but it came up. This was before gay marriage. This was before gay marriage came back, but there was a brief period of time where it was legal and then was illegal, and Jack McCoy was making the argument about it being, you know, an abomination against... That episode, by the way, does not hold up. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, his job in the show, I think, is really to be the Greek chorus and say the thing that, like, the creators of the show wish had been said out loud. And it's really interesting that you bring up that particular example, because it made me think about an episode way back in, like, the second or third season, where there's the crime that they're investigating is a gay cop who was taking fire and the other cops knew what was happening, but because he was gay, they didn't send backup. They didn't help him and they let him die. And Ben Stone, who was Jack McCoy's predecessor, is very much playing the Greek chorus there. He's saying, if you think that people should be able to decide who gets back up and who doesn't just because of who they date or who they love or whatever, then don't pick up 911 because they may decide that you're not the one that's going to get back up because of something they don't like about you. And I mean, you know, we're talking in the sort of early 1990s. Like 1990s yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the sociological experiment is great because you can go back 20 years and sort of see how attitudes about law enforcement have changed. I mean, going into SVU now, like in the season, every time someone makes an arrest, uh, all the people on the street have their cell phones out taking video. I know that there's actually been a study done. I remember talking about it on a talk show I used to produce with the person who did it on the views of law enforcement and the evolution of law enforcement as viewed through law and order. The one thing that law and order has created is a universe in which most cops are inherently really good, except for the guys that Briscoe used to work with out in Queens or whatever. You know, those those are the few rotten ones. And they've also created a universe in which prosecutors don't care about winning. They care about the truth. And this is like very, very different than what we hear now and today in this like era of wrongful convictions and prosecutorial misconduct being the focus of so much pop culture stuff. Law and Order really presented a world. It was almost like this is how it's supposed to be. And there are exceptions. But this is law and this is order and this is what the box should look like. So in law and order, big theme here, are the cops the heroes or are the lawyers the heroes? 
lawyers because I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that that's not to not to question your premise, but I think that that's the beauty of it because you go back and forth with them and you root for them and they do a good job of of keeping them both kind of as your favorites. You always want to say that the, you know the lawyers won't push enough or those lazy cops haven't got enough information. So I personally like them both. Yeah, let me just clarify. By hero, I mean protagonist. There's no villain. Then next week there'll be a different the villain. Defense attorney is always the villain. <laughs> Sometimes, right? But uh, that's another or long Not, not when Elaine Stritch was the defense not, attorney. Or Patty Lapone, the wonderful Patty Lapone. Or have, Tova Felgia, for that Do you have matter. an opinion on that, Brady, who the real protagonists are? I think the protagonist is the criminal justice system as a whole, because there are times when the cops uh, sort of fall down on the job, and there are times when the district attorney... And his minions don't quite hold up. But the system as a whole figures out in almost every case what happened and finds some measure of justice as a result, even if they don't wind up getting a conviction in the end. And this is something that I think, to Rebecca's point, a lot of people have criticized about the show is that it does present the system as generally working. Uh, even as it acknowledges that some people don't feel that way, it still says the system is the right way to handle these things. I mean, that's how it the show looks at it. The show is very much centered on the system as its protagonist. That's why I think some of the strongest scenes in the show are the scenes when the cops are called to testify in trials. You know, one of the storytelling things in Law and Order that, you know, you have to watch the show kind of as obsessively as we all do to really acknowledge this, but like, they play with time a lot in the show because the investigation always seems like it happens very quickly. And then the trial, it's like part 54. <laughs> so, you know, what you're talking about like, you know, on week seven of the trial, this is what happened or whatever. But some of the strongest scenes are when a cop is called to testify. Very often it's like Briscoe just being like real, real straight. I remember Benjamin Bratt's scenes on the stand, like you're always worried that he was going to because maybe he had crossed a line. Um, and it's about watching them stay true to what they did, stay as true to the truth as they need to stay in order to get the conviction. But that's also when you see them skirting the line a little bit and see the interaction, especially you have like a McCoy and like the Benjamin Bratt guy kind of butting heads. That's really where the rub is. And to me, those were some of the strongest scenes in the series that showed that there really was no greater force in the show. It was really both. What do you think part 54 means? <laughs> well, it's sort of like the passage of time. Like it will say... It's the 54th hearing of that trial. Right. See, well, you learn something new every time you watch Law and Order. Right. And that's why I'm excited about the new Great Courses Plus video <laughs> learning service, because there's so many new things to learn. You have an, that was well played. You have an unlimited access to a huge library of the Great Courses lecture series and so many fascinating subjects like science and history and law. But, Law, <laughs> order. Exactly, order. Uh, and so we really want you to try the Great Courses Plus, and they're going to give our listeners a special chance to watch their most popular course, The Fundamentals of Photography, and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. I've been taking The Fundamentals of Photography on my iPhone and on my laptop, and I tell you, I've got an expensive camera, and I've never used it the right way. <laughs> I find that now all my photos are really great. I, I was at a conference, and I had to take photographs, and I was looking at this. I didn't like the way the the color balance was, and I'm playing with the aperture. The photos are framed so much better, and I get a lot out of it. And so I who's the protagonist, you or the great courses instructor? 
instructor who taught you how to do that? Oh, um, well, it, he's the protagonist. <laughs> I'm just the uh, the Pancho Villa sidekick. Well, here's the next question then. Once you finish this class, do you then move on to the second class, which is Fundamentals of Photography, SVU? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, having watched a lot of Law & Order, that those crime scene photographers are not doing it the right way. No. <laughs> they don't have a, a good vision of composition. But, you know, if you'd like to learn a little bit about that, very easily to do. You go to Great Courses Plus, and the plus means you can watch as many different lectures as you want anytime, whether it's Greek history or Greek food or Greek architecture. They have it. Now the Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream these hundreds of courses, including the Fundamentals of Photography. That's a $235 value. You'll get that for free. And that's when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crime. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crime. crime. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you think? Not I was, bad. Yeah. Was, you know, it's a little easier and smoother, I think, when you're hosting, because then you know when it's going to happen. That's like a big flaw. Like, normally I'm hosting, and people are just answering questions, and Brady, you've yeah. never and sat then, in before. Then you have to hand it off to your personal oh, George Fenneman to read the... I don't hand it off. He just starts doing it. Like, he'll, like, pretend like he's answering the question, and then he'll just make some sort of... Wait a second. Bex 5000, are you saying that the big flaw is having Kevin host... No, I'm saying maybe the big flaw so, is having me host. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, you have, you're a Marine, so you have a bulldog. One bulldog or more than one bulldog? Two bulldogs. Dr. J. Dreadnought Cornelius McMuffin Tops. And Jesus Dabet Christ, Schwartz. really? Yeah, he goes by Dreadnought, like okay. HMS Dreadnought, the most feared battleship of the Dreadnought era. That's a good bulldog name. And that's a good Dreadnought name. <laughs> yeah. Dreadnought? Yeah, that sounds like a, like a, like a superhero. And then like Babette Schwartz because she's so cute and cuddly. Well, you know, if you have a dog, you only want the best for them and pups need a lot of exercise and a chance to socialize with other dogs and the perfect place for that is Camp Camp Bow Wow Wow. yeah Camp Bow Wow (laughs) has locations nationwide and they offer doggy daycare boarding and even more for our furry friends and the dogs get to be supervised by these camp counselors who are certified in pet first aid and CPR they have web cameras so you can watch Fido play during the day it's really great I gotta tell you I never heard of Camp Bow Wow before I saw that they were gonna be a sponsor of the show so I looked it up I am desperate for someone to open a Camp Bow Wow like in our town I think it would be so great they have little tents they have little cots for the dogs to lie on there's like you can watch them from work I don't know it seems pretty good I would like to watch Babette while she snoozed in a camp tent. I used to have a bulldog wire because she lie upside down like a catfish and snore and fart. I say that she snores out of both ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know when your pets come back from camp, they're going to be so pooped they're going to sleep all night, just like your husband should, right, Rebecca? <laughs> Trust me, your dog will love Camp Bow Wow, and you'll love picking up a nice, tired, and thoroughly happy dog. So check them out at campbowwow.com slash crime and get your dog's first day for free. That's a great deal. They are found all over the country. Look for a location near you at campbowwow.com slash crime. And if you think you might like to own a Camp Bow Wow, maybe set up one right next to Rebecca's office. Yeah, you can <laughs> you can learn about their franchise opportunities at campbowwowfranchise.com. All right. I guess uh, we're moving on now back to the show. Yes. Was that all right? I got to say, it was pretty good. And I'm pretty enthusiastic about Camp Bow Wow. So if you bring your, your dog to Camp Bow Wow, send us a selfie because uh, we'd like to know that it <laughs> worked. Dog showing up in an overcoat, like a Lenny Briscoe outfit. And like, <laughs> McGruff? I guess that worked, Kevin. I just like how they call the dog babysitters counselors. It's like you can imagine the dogs being like, hey, let's go sneak out and put some peanut butter on the outside of that other tent and see what happens. But if your dog stays overnight, they actually it's do like have like K2 
campfire treats. <laughs> Not no real fire, but they go to bed with a little camp treat, and it's really it's a really great concept. You have to wonder, like at summer camps, like a lot of the kids who grow up going to the summer camp then turn into counselors right. when they get old enough. Do the dogs? Do you think have that opportunity for upward mobility? It's all fun and games until the dogs try to parent trap you. That's all I'm going to say about. Well, that. there's no archery at this uh, at this <laughs> camp. Not yet. <laughs> all right, so let's get back to Law and Order, and we we talked about different eras, and so by the time we switch prosecutors. Is Law & Order Jerry Orbach's show, or is it Sam Waterston's show from there on out? Sam Waterston's show. I mean, Jerry Orbach is a great character and a great cop. But the bottom line is, he shows up, he briscoes his brisco way around and briscoes out the crime. But Sam Waterston is a scene-chewer like you read about in the best possible way. And it's hard to finish an episode. The last scene is going to be Sam Waterston sitting in the DA's office drinking scotch. It's Sam Waterston's show. I mean, that's my opinion. I think the guy with the Jerry Orbach autograph on his wall may disagree. I don't, but I'm going to make try and make a case for it that this is a show, you know, you could almost argue in a lot of ways that I said the criminal justice system is the protagonist of the show. In a lot of ways, you could say New York is the protagonist of the show, because really, this show is a love letter to this fictionalized world of New York that Dick Wolf has in his mind that really does in a lot of ways still harken back to what New York City was really like in the 70s and early 80s where it was grittier and crummier and there was horrible things happening on every corner. And Lenny Briscoe is the one who's out there on the street in the middle of all of that. He's the one who's interfacing with all of these crazy, nutty people who are out there in the middle of the night. He's the one sort of picking through the garbage, trying to figure out if somebody stashed a piece of evidence in a place. And Jack McCoy is the one who inherits all of that gritty street work that detectives do and then goes into a fancy courtroom with it. Now, I don't actually believe that. I do think it's Sam Waterston's (laughs) show. But by way of balance, I think we have to at least acknowledge that Lenny Briscoe is the new Yorkist part of this New York show. Wyrick, do you have a, an opinion on that? It's the same. It's Sam Watterson's show. I mean, you love Lenny Briscoe, but he's there for a number of rim shots. You know, he'll say, like, in New Hampshire, I spent a year there one weekend. <laughs> and you know, that can't be the focus of a show that's about Law and Order. But he plays his part beautifully, but it, it's really McCoy's. You know, there's a real dichotomy that you have touched on, Brady, where you say that Dick Wolf wants this gritty part of New York. And again, if you look at NYPD Blue, that is way the hell grittier. However, the difference is Law and Order actually is filmed in New York, mm-hmm. whereas all the NYPD Blue stuff was on a back set somewhere in Los Angeles. It does capture something of of New York, but I don't really think it's the seediness of it at all. I think it's just sort of the bigness, the metropolis there, and that gives it that sense of place, which is, I don't think, really as R-rated as maybe you think it is. Well, early on, it was very much, in the first like four or five seasons, it was very much playing on sort of the crummy side of New York City, and the crimes were in lower-rent neighborhoods, and the crimes were much bloodier. And then over time, they did start to do a lot more 
more, you know, Manhattan socialite framed for murder kind of stories. And so it did change the character of the series and its setting in the fictionalized Law and Order world. The show got gentrified pretty much at the same way that New York got gentrified and like a kind of in the same neighborhood. The Giuliani even. era. Well, yeah, exactly. And one of the things, I mean, first of all, what Law and Order gets to do when the show gets gentrified is it gets to use like real New York City doormen in the show. And all those little doorman scenes, those like interstitial scenes where they're just like talking to some doorman about something that they saw or some lady in the building. A lot of them are real doormen. Some of them are like character actors playing doormen, but some of them are also real doormen. My sister's doorman in her apartment told me he's been on like seven episodes of the different versions of the Law and Order franchise. I thought he looked familiar. <laughs> and, and what color was the car that he saw speeding away? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know what? Doormen are in rich people's buildings. So it's a way to sort of add color and exposition and sort of throw in clues uh, with a character who would actually see something and know something. So that was sort of a trick. But then also, I think there's something to what you're saying about like the Briscoe era. Briscoe looked really, really good in those gritty settings. Benjamin Bratt, Jesse L. Martin looked really good in some ladies' loft or penthouse, sitting on the upholstered sofa, talking about uh, her husband's socialite mistress. They just looked good sitting there. And that has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, it is a television show. Warwick, does it really bring something to the show when in sort of this interstitial scene, you know, the characters are getting a euro on a real street corner or, you know, walking through the real Central Park? It's ridiculous. You see, <laughs> you see, if two cops come up to you and ask about a grisly murder and you're the architect building a skyscraper and you can't even take 30 seconds. We have to, to talk about look, that. <laughs> yes, to not look at the, at the blueprints. And he's like, raise the scaffolding. Yeah, put that over there. Oh, what did you guys say? Yeah, that severed head I found over in, in that guy's lunchbox. There just unfazed by it. It's a little bit comical. It still makes you like it, but just the idea that that you can't even stop whatever you're doing, it's no matter York. how trivial. My favorite one is the time that Briscoe had to interview a guy who ran a donut shop. <laughs> and the guy goes, isn't this perfect? Let's talk about some of the tropes, because Law & Order has a couple of Law & Order cliche type of things. I mean, you bring it up perfectly, Wyrick. Why is it that no one stops what they're doing when the police want to talk to you about a homicide? I gotta say, one of my favorite impressions that Kevin does is he does the impression of somebody being questioned by a cop on Law & Order, and basically, he'll just take a sweater and fold it and refold it, like, and walk around the living room with it, and then be like, "Yes." And then he'll put it on a shelf, and then he'll take another thing off the shelf, and he'll just, you know, keep talking. And I don't know what he did the other night. But he came over here, and he had a blue shirt on. Then he left his pants. Right. Off. I'll tell you why. I mean, I know why I think they do it that way. One of the things that we love about Law and Order is the tightness and cleanness of the scene writing, and the thing that you don't see a lot of in Law and Order, unless there's a reason for you to see it, is the cops walking from the car down the sidewalk up the stairs and knocking on a door. It just cuts right to when they're in the place talking to the person and that sense of like motion that person you know first of all it does convey the New Yorkness the city that never stops moving kind of thing but it also sometimes gives clues sometimes you actually get a little bit of a clue about the case because that person might end up being like the person who did it later and you might see them do something or hear them say something in that moment so you kind of feel like you have to watch but to watch two people sit across from each other on a couch to watch that stop in the action I think it would take away from the cleanness and the efficiency with which a lot of these scenes are written. You have to keep things moving. And in one way to keep things moving is to have a character who is in motion the entire time. So that architect is going to be doing his or her job the whole time that he or she is talking to the cops or the donut person is going to be doing their job the whole time that they do that. It also then gives 
to come back to what you said about the tightness of the scenes, a real easy excuse to get out of a scene. <laughs> Rather than just saying, are we done here? They can go, well, these donuts aren't going to fry themselves. <laughs> Sound effect, next scene. Well, that's really the difference between Law & Order and Dragnet, right? Mm-hmm. Because... It, and long before the West Wing did it, the walk and talk, it's a television device to keep the action flowing. Law for and what Order is, is what is really transactional exposition is almost the anti-dragnet in that way. Because if you watch old dragnets, as I do, then you'll see ninety percent of the show is them driving to places, knocking on doors, and waiting for people to show up. And right. occasionally, the people they interview will walk around or something like that. Mostly, they just fidget. But there's so much time getting from place to place that you it does slow the entire investigation down. Wyrick, do you ever sort of like maybe chuckle to yourself when you see this? Has there ever like been like a ridiculous example of, uh, do they ever like interview a stripper while she's still going around the pole or anything like that? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the one that I brought, it seems like there's always a lot of construction going on and no one wants to stop. Mm-hmm. And then, or there's the other device that I... <laughs> I kind of take a little personally because I lived there for a while. If you know there's going to be any interaction with New Jersey, they either think everybody in New Jersey is non-cooperative or absolute numbskulls. Yeah. So you're like, oh, they came over from New Jersey. Okay, we got to take a whole different view on this case from now on. I always tell Kevin, Kevin thinks that there's this uh, rivalry that exists in New York between New York and Boston. I contend that's actually just a Boston thing. The real rivalry really is between New York and New Jersey. New Yorkers hate New Jersey. And anytime <laughs> that the investigators go north, they go up to Connecticut or they go up uh, into Rhode Island or somewhere like like that, those are places where nothing is ever actually happening. It's right. the stark quiet that they show in those scenes compared to the, the loudness of the New York City. And the scenes. cops have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea how to do it. Yeah, it's <laughs> just these small-time rubes who it always looks like every upstate case. New York because they shoot that probably in upstate New York. So, okay, here's another trope: you turn on the show and all of a sudden you see Beverly D'Angelo <laughs> or you see Chevy Chase. What do you think that character is going to be doing by the end of the show? If the dad from Family Ties is on, he's probably the he killer. Right, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Michael Gross, instantly, he's the perp. Now, they do this way more often on SVU than on Original Recipe. I don't know if it's just because I'm a... B-list actor in New York, and I have a free Thursday. Well, the thing that you see a ton in all the Law & Order franchises, but that really started in the original Law & Order, is the preponderance of soap opera actors and actresses, and the preponderance of actors and actresses from Sesame Street. Um, I remember seeing Maria. Maria was was a judge. judge. Gina has been on every Law & Order. She's been a cop. She's been a a victim, and she's been a killer. She's been on all of them. And so you have to remember, though, that these soap opera actors and actresses are based in New York, and they are really solid, good actors and actresses. But to the evening TV viewer, they're largely unknown. So whenever I would see somebody from As the World Turns or All My Children, one of the New York-based soaps in the show, I would always know they did it or played a big part in it because I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good actress that is maybe unknown. For a while, actually, on uh, one of the Law & Orders, Tamara Tooney, who played one of the medical examiners, was also on As the World Turns at the same time, playing the, or rolling As the World Turns as a lawyer and playing the medical examiner on Law & Order for many, many, many years. Some of the actual cast members first got, were on the show with some of those bit parts, oh, including yeah. Jerry Orbach. Yeah. He was a defense attorney in season two before he ever got on. And in fact, it was filming those scenes where he first talked to Paul Sorvino, who said at the time he really liked his job. He said, man, I have hit the jackpot. This is the best job in the world. And then he soured on the job. He wanted to get out of this. He thought the schedule was too hectic. He wanted to do other things. And so... Jerry Orbach remembered that, and he said, ooh, I'd like to get in on this action, and he stayed 
for the rest of his career. The sounds, pro- sounds like Paul McCartney telling Michael Jackson that music publishing is where it's at, and then Michael Jackson steals all the Beatles The music. prosecutor right now in SVU was a big-time bad guy in Law & Order. Like, a big-time multi-episode bad guy is now the protagonist prosecutor on SVU. Well, it's a small world. <laughs> and you see that crossover with also some premium cable shows. You see that with The Wire, Sex in the City, or other shows that you can tell are filmed, Nurse Jackie, that are filmed in New York. I think that every actor from The Wire has at some point been on Law & Order as a, very often their defense attorneys. Like, we've seen Bunk as the defense attorney. We've seen, you know, Omar has been on uh, Law & Order. Like, all these great actors from The Wire. And, of course, that sort of David Simon universe is very much been a rife hunting ground for the Dick Wolf universe. You know, I uh, look at Munch, for example. He's from Homicide Life on the Streets, is now a, a character in SVU and also appeared on the original Law & Order. Yeah, actually, I think Richard Belzer holds the record that the character Munch has appeared in more television shows as Munch yep. than any other character X-Files. TV history. The X-Files. and I don't know. I guess you could wiki that. <laughs> we can put it on our website. Why, Rick, how many times have you seen a rerun and that eyewitness or that minor character ends up becoming a major star? Oh, I just watched one of those the other day. That happens all the time. That's kind of the inside baseball of Law & Order. You like to watch that. And then you say, oh, you know, I, I, I see this person later as a major movie star. And I think that's what keeps you coming back. What is it? TNT or USA Network that you can just kind of leave Law and Order on in the background and catch those all the time. I actually just saw an episode the other day with Jennifer Garner as like a college student who was who seduces, a, she was a temp- temptress yeah. to Benjamin Bratt's character and you know she's just like little Jennifer Garner. Just that sort was of, Jennifer Garner? That was Jennifer Garner, yeah. I'm surprised and that you all, didn't know that. Well, I knew that Detective Reynaldo Curtis had trouble keeping it within the family, so to speak, but I didn't know it was because of Jennifer Garner. Boy, that... He couldn't keep his service weapon holstered, is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to describe it, I've just yes. pulled up a, a blog post for Mental Floss on some actors who started on Law & Order. Philip Seymour Hoffman was in season one. Uh, Jennifer Garner, we just mentioned Claire Danes, was in season three. The Ty Ford, Burrell. my so-called wife. Rooney wife. Mara was on season seven. Kate Mara has been on. John Krasinski was on, looks like as a high school basketball player. Jessica Chastain, Vera Farmiga, Edie Falco, Juliana Margulies. I mean, this is like... A lot of those were also SVU. Yeah, yeah, but know? if you think about a show Law & Order produced a lot of episodes. It wasn't one of these shows that made 13 episodes in a season. They'd make like the full run of 28 or whatever. Right. Over 20 years, each episode, you have so many different witnesses. And tons the of The casting scenes. directors must like be up all night. I got to find a Jewish sounding uh, woman for the scene in Brooklyn. To walk around in a store while the cops are talking to her. Yeah. <laughs> I think sort of your, your, your average aspiring actor in New York, their resume consists of a lot of college theater work and two episodes of Law and Order. That's right. Minimum. That's right. So I'm going to get right to the lightning round here. First of all, and we'll start with you, Wyrick. Throughout the series, who was the best detective on Law and Order? Or a pair of detectives or just one detective? I'm the host, Rebecca. Oh, You're going to have to shut your hole. It's just hard. You're okay. going to shut your hole, okay? All right, I'll shut All it. All right. <laughs> Stow it. I say uh, Lenny Briscoe because he says things along the lines of love. That's the disease that's cured immediately by marriage. <laughs> Brady, who's your favorite? Who's I, the best? I got to say Briscoe uh, for the same reason. I mean, this is a man who once advised the person he was interviewing that there is no such thing as a hooker-client confidentiality. That's pretty great. Although, I have to give some props here. He was only on the show for a couple of years, but Dennis Farina 
as Detective Joe Fontana was fantastic. I, even to this day, still will say to my wife, if there was something I need, by the way, ma'am, I'm authorized. Actually, Great line. Yeah, he you was know, so good. He was so good, and he was going to be my pick, only because I felt like we couldn't all say Briscoe, but he actually, I just was watching some Farina episodes from the Farina years uh, the other day, and he actually brought some darkness to the character that uh, Briscoe's darkness was very personal demons, I'm kind of over it, with some backsliding darkness. Dennis Farina was edgy. Dennis Farina was a little bit more Sipowitz in his willingness to sort of push and test and, you know, get other cops to, you know, question themselves. And if he somebody brought, If somebody wasn't giving him the answers he wanted, he would get really creepy. That's right. Really creepy. Creepy on the stand. You'd see him go super cold on the stand. And, you know, Dennis Farina was a very R.I.P. Dennis Farina, by the way, a very, very complex actor who brought, like, a lot of gravitas. You know, one of my favorite films, Out of Sight with George Clooney. Dennis Farina actually plays J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez's dad, in that film. And he's only in it for like two or three scenes. Absolutely steals the movie. And when I was watching this episode of Law & Order the other day with Dennis Farina, I thought... We should have had a few more years of Dennis Farina on this show. Okay, well then, let's talk about then pairings and the favorite two detectives. What team is uh, your favorite, Brady? Since someone else is going to say Briscoe and whoever else, I'm going to go New School. And I like the last two detectives. I thought Lupo and Bernard the really years. were fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and the sort of waning, like Dick Wolf is clearly just trying to outrun, get the record for the longest running dramatic series. I thought those guys were really good together. You know, Lupo by himself would have been a little too laconic and and Bernard would have been a little too enthusiastic. But together, I thought they were great. Rebecca, you tell me, what's your favorite pair? I like uh, pre-Julia Roberts, Benjamin Bratt as Ray Curtis <laughs> with Lenny Briscoe. Did, did, did Julia Roberts' double episode ruin it for no, you? No, the relationship with Julia Roberts, that relationship going public. Benjamin Bratt was not cast as a heartthrob on that show. He was just cast as a younger... Uh, nobody was cast as a no. heartthrob on well, that show. That's, no, Jesse L. Martin was cast as a heartthrob on that show. That was a good-looking guy. He was on Ally McBeal, yeah. and then he went to Law & Order, and he was a hot guy. Benjamin Bratt became a hot guy after you knew he was Julia Roberts' boyfriend, and you would see him in they tuxedos. They wrote him differently. And they wrote him differently after that. And the pre-Julia Roberts-Benjamin Bratt was a really, really good pairing with Briscoe. There was like some, Briscoe did a really good job of like keeping that boy in line and he made some mistakes and he was just a little edgier and I really, really liked that pair a lot. Wyrick, who are your Batman and Robin? Mr. Big and Paul Sorvino. Just because, <laughs> <laughs> just because they're, I, I don't know, I just really like Paul Sorvino. He can go for years with his hair never moving and they're just, they're just something about those two that are really appealing. I like Mr. Big and the dad from Dirty Dancing. I think that was a really good... I think it's two all-star all-star detectives. Do you remember when Dirty Dancing was having... They were doing that Dirty Dancing marathon on like TNT or whatever and they did the promo for Dirty Dancing and they were like, and the guy from Law and Order. <laughs> My favorite promos were the one was like someone... They're in New York and they said, do you know how to get to the Statue of Liberty? And they said, yeah, you have to go down past that alley where uh, Briscoe found the headless hooker and then turn through the bar. says, you see New York differently. All yes. right, let's let's move on to another thing here. Your favorite executive assistant DA. Rebecca, you go. Jack McCoy. End of sentence. Brady? <laughs> I have a soft spot for Ben Stone. McCoy was a, a show stealer for sure, but Ben Stone could ask a question in a way that would just stop everybody. And he would always do it in this very genteel sort of Southern way. And he'd always say, sir... Do you realize that by murdering that woman, you also murdered the unborn child you had vowed to protect, sir? 
And I mean, instant <laughs> conviction right there. Wyrick, how about you? I'd say McCoy, and along those same lines, and this is not exactly on point on this, but one of the problems you always have with the courtroom scene is the lawyer being able to say, well, isn't it true that you meant to kill the baby because you impregnated the woman, and then objection, withdrawn. <laughs> like, like, as long as you say withdrawn, you could say anything. It's like all due respect. Like, you know, Judge, with all due respect, you're a real jack. Withdrawn. Withdrawn. All right, let's talk about assistant DAs, that feisty courtroom sidekick. Brady, who was your favorite? Jill Hennessy. Claire Mm -hmm. Kincaid. Yeah. She's Canadian. She's earnest. She's making tons of mistakes. All She's dragged through the mud about every sixth episode. And then she's killed by a drunk driver. Did you pick up at the time the the subtext that she and Jack McCoy were having an affair? No, not until sort of my second go through with the reruns. And, and they did have clues in there, but they were They never, subtle. never said it. They never said it. But someone would say some innuendo about the case. And the two of them, their eyebrows would both go up at the same time. Or you'd start to notice that they were always eating late together, even when they have basically solved the case. I mean, I did not know my wife was trying to date me when we first got together for like <laughs> months. So I am not necessarily the person who picks up on these well, things Well, I think first, there's the end of one episode, Adam Schiff is walking out of the room with the two of them behind him, and he says, oh, that's, you have to know who you're sleeping with, or something like that, and they kind of give each other a glance. There's a look, right. She was actually going to see him when she got killed by a drunk driver. She was. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rebecca, who's your uh, favorite assistant DA? Uh, I have a controversial pick. It's not Elizabeth Rome, I promise. Um, I actually like Angie Harmon. I really like Abby Carmine. Michael, played by Angie Harmon, and she it was it was more of a slow burn because she is distracting in the part because she has the raspy voice and she's like very Connecticut pretty. And when she's in that show, you know, it's like always perfect. But the thing that I did like about Angie Harmon, and this is going to sound incredibly sexist, but I'm a woman, so I can say it. It was really fun watching her go to a jail and talk to a really bad guy and get him to do something that she needed him to do. She was good at it. She was tough. She was tough. She was written that way. She was refined. But she would just go in and she'd like throw the papers on the table and say, this is what we have. I don't know. There was something about it that worked for me and that still continues to work when I watch the reruns. Who did you say you weren't going to pick? That would be Serena Sutherland, played by Elizabeth Rome. Uh, the one is that because was... she's a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, like the of most course. incredible non sequitur. Of course not. Of course not. The worst departure of any character from any TV show in history. At, At least there was a clue that, that McCoy <laughs> and Claire had something going Do on. Do you want to explain that for our listeners who might not remember that? Well, apparently there was audience backlash. They didn't like she was a terrible her performance. Actress. She was a bad she was actress. She was a terrible actress. And so in order for her to get out of the show, Fred Thompson's character towards the end of the season was on her for being more about being more passionate than a prosecutor needs to be. So in the last episode, he dismisses her and she says, is it because I'm a lesbian? (laughs) Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. (laughs) And and, and the only time you ever saw that is some creepy defense attorney said, can I go to lunch? And she said no. Yeah, that whole season was was really weird. And and her character was weird. Her acting was wooden. And her costuming was really weird. If you look back on those episodes, she was wearing a suit jacket with no blouse underneath. Like, that was the costume. And Wyrick, you can attest to this. This is the one place in the world where women can still be admonished for the length of their skirt is in, like, a court of law, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, especially federal court or and state court, that they absolutely have to be wearing a skirt. 
and they have to wear shirt. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time. They call them and blouses shoes. for ladies. She just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit. It wasn't good. And there have been a handful of characters like that. You know, a, a lot of fans didn't really like the very first senior detective, Max Grevy, who's played by George Zunza. And you can see why, you know, the show really needed a Lenny Briscoe to really anchor it in that New Yorkness. And he was kind of playing against that. Fred Thompson was kind of a funny fit because he was clearly, <laughs> he was a fish out of water and kind of meant to be. Yeah. But he gave me another line that I quote constantly. He was talking about a defendant, somebody who did a dumb crime and then covered it up in a dumb way. And so they were explaining this to him and he says, okay, what's dumber than stupid? Which is a line I use all the time. <laughs> well, why for district attorney that elected office, who played it best for you? Oh, I think the original. As uh, Stephen Adam Schiff. Yes, Stephen Hill absolutely. was Adam Schiff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just because of really the pace of his speaking. I mean, that that's all I really needed to just enjoy him. Rebecca, how about you? Your favorite DA? Oh, I really like Diana Weist as the DA. I liked her because, I mean, I'm not saying that she was the strongest, but I liked the character that she had a very professorial, I think she was supposed to be like a legal professor or something who sort of got recruited to be the DA and then she decided just to not run again or whatever. I like the interplay between her and Jack because, you know, they would always say, you know, keep it on a tight leash, Jack, keep it on whatever. But they had a nice conflict that he tried to make about Sometimes it felt like the writing was like she's a woman and she's his boss. And she just was very just sort of straight and warm at the same time. I don't know. I kind of like Diana Weiss. What can I say? I'm a, I'm a sucker for the her. The funniest part about that character was that she was meant to be sort of Hollywood's ideal liberal academic district attorney. And yet they had Rudy Giuliani actually come on the show and say, here's your new boss, Jack McCoy. Like, he played the character. Like, Rudy Giuliani <laughs> is picking this woman to be the new DA for New York? Right. Um, Yeah, sure. But I do like the Fred Thompson episodes a lot. Fred was a great character he on was. that show. And he and fired he Serena well. Sutherland. <laughs> and he fired Serena Sutherland. And did you not care for Jack McCoy as DA? No, I, he was just always still Jack McCoy. I know that he ascended to the role of DA, but he was still prosecuting the cases. He was just sitting in the chair while he was doing yeah, it. Yeah, I, I didn't even really recognize that he was was. He, he just seemed like, okay, well, we're not going to hire another actor to do that for a little while. <laughs> Jack, you both. Rebecca, who is your favorite psychiatrist? Oh, J.K. Simmons. Hands down. I liked Olivet. Later, though, she turns and becomes like Was he like dragging or rushing? <laughs> I don't know. J.K. Simmons is one of those actors that I've always really, really liked. And the other sort of unsung actors from the Law & Order franchise is Esapatha Murkison, the actress who led a squad, I think, on a original recipe, but also on SVU. And J.K. Simmons, for me, was one of those characters. I mean, B.D. Wong is a great actor, the woman who played Olivet, good actress. But J.K. Simmons at the time had the perfect combination of, I know that guy, but I don't know his name, and he's really good. And when he comes into a scene, you know it's going to be super interesting. B.D. Wong was a little showy as the psychiatrist and like really stretches, you know, but I think J.K. Simmons was just like on point. Okay, how about you, Brady? You have a pick for best psychologist? I'll, I'll just, by way, for balance, I'll pick out Olivet. I liked both of them. J.K. Simmons was fantastic as uh, Emil Skoda, but I do like Carolyn McCormick's, I do like <laughs> Carolyn McCormick, and, and here's, here's one reason why I like her, because if you remember in the early days of Law & Order, it was a sausage party. There were no women on the cast every single day. Except for the Emmy and the psychiatrist. Except for the Emmy and the psychiatrist, yep. both of which were sort of part-time characters. And she was able to bring a whole different dimension to the investigation when she was on the show. Because, you know, you have Briscoe and Logan most of the time in those days who are just kind of balls to the wall, like, screw the defendant, this perp is guilty as hell. And then you have... 
Olivet there saying, no, he's crazy. His dad beat him up every day for 18 years of his life. That fundamentally changed his brain. You have to include that kind of information when you take this case to trial. And that was an interesting way to get beyond the sort of let's just hunt down the clues and the leads and the testimony and find who did it. But you had to then get into these murkier, grayer areas when you have the Olivet in there. I did love the just the role of the psychiatrist in the show, period. Because the psychiatrist was there to be the devil's advocate for the defendant in a way. The defense attorneys were so often vilified on the show that the psychiatrist would be the one who would provide that like dose of humanity or that dose of inhumanity. Like, can she kill? And uh, Olivet comes in and goes, I don't want to speculate, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wyrick, did the lawyers ever solve the crime like they do in real life? I mean, do, do lawyers ever go in and say, oh, this investigation was flawed. Here's the real killer. <laughs> uh, that, that is very rare. I mean, I wish we always did that. It would make us look a lot cooler, but I, that is not an accurate portrayal. Okay, who has a favorite episode? Rebecca. I do. Uh, there was an episode, I had to actually look up what season it was from because I'm not Brady. It was from season six, it turns out. It's called Homesick. And it was about a nanny who was accused of killing a baby in her care. Ostensibly, it was ripped from the headlines case, ostensibly because she wanted to go back to Europe. I'm not saying this is like the best episode ever. It's just one that's very memorable to me because it's one of the few Law & Order episodes that really didn't get figured out until the final courtroom scene. And that's when the truth came out. And it was by Patty Lapone, the defense attorney in a great, very Patty Lapone, totally Evita performance. Did she yell at somebody for having their cell phone on in the courtroom? No. Okay. She was questioning a witness. For those who haven't seen the episode, I want to spoil it. She was questioning a witness and figured out that that witness did it. And you can see in her face when she figures it out and changes the line of questioning. She's the one who she walks back and whispers to Jack, you owe me one. Yep. And he picks up on what's going on. Yep, great episode. Brady, you must have a favorite episode. Uh, well, I personally I agree with Rebecca. I love the ones when the defense attorneys, all of a sudden, because they're officers of the court, they figure out what's going on and they feel, you know, Elaine Stritch did that in one of her episodes and it was so much fun to watch her and the DA's office sort of setting up her client almost. There's a favorite episode I have that, again, is not sort of the greatest episode in the world, but it's so memorable to me because they're prosecuting... TV's version of a rock star is this guy called C-Square. <laughs> he sort of looks like the bassist in Guns N' Roses, Duff McKagan. And he's it's it's sort of a takeoff of the Mike Tyson rape trial. He's accused of raping a college student. And it's a he said, she said kind of case. But the banter between Briscoe and Logan and this guy who's sort of talking and he's this, like this white dude who's trying to sound very like from the streets you know you don't have to, I didn't shoot nobody you didn't do nothing and then like they find out his real name is Clarence Carmichael and so you know he's going you got nothing on me I'm going to go right to my attorney and, and Briscoe just goes take it up with the judge Clarence <laughs> I actually have a favorite episode alright it's the season finale when Claire gets killed mm -hmm. what's unusual about that it breaks format it starts off where they're they're watching the first supposedly the first execution in the state of New York, and then it's the fallout, and they all go their d separate ways. And there's no investigation. It's really a character study into all these different people, and especially now looking back and knowing that 
Jack and Claire had a thing, Mm -hmm. it's more poignant for me. And then I wanted to see the follow-up, which is the first episode of the next season, to see if they address that. And they barely do. They did at the very end. At the very end. Where Briscoe walks out of McCoy's office, and I forget, you must remember what he said. He said, she was coming to see me, you know, or something like that. Yeah, he kind of, he says, like, he basically says, this is all my fault. Because Briscoe thought it was his his own fault. Because Briscoe thought it was his fault. Right. Yeah, and she said she didn't have to get in the car. Because he was drinking and he couldn't give her a ride, yeah. right? Wasn't that the... That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, she ended up picking him up and, and taking him someplace. Right, and... right, 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 right. All right, so that's going to finish our discussion of Law & Order, original uh, recipe. Quick, quickly, uh, real quick, can I throw out one question? Go right Which, ahead. Everybody's favorite co-producer. <laughs> <laughs> because I'll give you mine from SVU. It is Mr. Speed Weed. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the man's name from SVU. He's a writer and co-producer, huh. and you see that right over the credits, Mr. Speedweed. Yeah, you really can see his fingerprints all over the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one other thing that Law & Order brought to the world, and it is a sound effect. Yes. And we're going to hear it right now because we're getting to a little thing that Rebecca likes to call the crime of the week. Hey, last weekend, the U.S. Coast Guard had to rescue a man who set off on a 1,000-mile journey from Florida to Bermuda. But the guy wasn't sailing or even swimming. He was trying to run the distance inside a giant plastic hamster ball. <laughs> Ultramarathoner Reza Bellucci planned on running inside a hydropod, living five months on tuna, oh. granola bars, and filtered seawater. <laughs> he said he was doing it to raise money for, quote, children who have lost hope. <laughs> the Coast Guard sent him a letter expressly prohibiting him from doing this, and once they heard that he was off. It didn't take long for crews to spot the plastic bubble bobbing around in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, amazingly, the Coast Guard rescued him two years ago when he tried the same stunt. In 2014, they found him in the middle of the ocean with no map, no compass, no GPS, and asking for directions to Bermuda. (laughs) Which way is Bermuda? Turn right at North Carolina. (laughs) So he faces seven years in jail and a $40,000 fine. But, panel, the question is... What is a more suitable punishment for this adventurer? Rebecca, we'll start with you. I will say that for the rest of his life, this ultramarathoner can only drink his Gatorade from one of those bottles that has a little ball on the end of the spout, <laughs> and that he has to forever be imprisoned in a house that is made up of a series of plastic tubes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's Wyrick, harsh. Wyrick, what, what do you think? What should this guy's punishment be? Easiest question ever on the show. He needs to be forced to actually do it. <laughs> he needs to drink seawater through a Brita filter and I'm not sure where he was going to expel all this tuna fish, but he needs to be forced to do the entire marathon. You get like Ken Wolf yelling at him, come on, come on, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Brady, what would you do? I would let him go and try to complete the thing, but I would take someone like, say, Urkel from Family Matters, <laughs> put him in there with him, or a Richard Simmons, just sort of a very loud, brash, and perhaps grating personality and see whether that sort of swears him off of doing this a third time. I smell reality show. Is it it terrible when he's at Richard Simmons? I thought you were going to say Richard Gere. (laughs) 
you went there. You went there. Oh, he would keep running faster to keep someone, looking behind him. Someone had to. So we should probably wrap it up and end it on that note. Brady Carlson, author of Dead Presidents and the fantastic blog at BradyCarlson.com. If our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they do that? Take the deal, Jack. Take the deal. I mean, um, sorry. I got a little off track. Um, I'm at Brady Carlson, all one word. And Wyrick, if our listeners want to connect with you on the Twitter or the Instagram, where can they find you? It is James W. Wyrick for Twitter, and I just want to thank you for letting me come to you from the Miss Anna Studios in Kingsport, Tennessee. Tell everybody literally where you are. That would be my elementary school best friend. I'm at his house, and I am in his fifth grade daughter's closet. Wait. That is an SVU premise Everything right there. Everything is pink and rosy in here, but a it's marine the only prosecutor place. found I, in a little girl's closet. I, th- I think you should. Both n- parents are home at the moment. I, I think you should name that the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Studio. <laughs> Rebecca, yes. if uh, people want to find you on Twitter after you get me a sandwich, how would they do that? Uh, you can get your own damn sandwich. <laughs> uh, and they can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Kevin P. Flynn. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions how to do that are posted on the blog at CrimeWritersOn.com. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show is recorded in Control Room 5 at New Hampshire Public Radio and in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. A Closet in Our Basement. On behalf of all of the crime writers, thanks for listening. We'll catch you later. Uh, Toby Ball, Durham, New Hampshire. My question is, why, with all the other cop shows and lawyer shows, why is it that you are so troublingly obsessed with Law & Order? Why is that show so much better than the others? And uh, while we're at it, my suggestion for Crime of the Week is, where the hell are Laura and Toby Uh, Why aren't they here? What has happened to them? We'd like to thank our sponsor this week, Camp Bow Wow, daycare and boarding for dogs. Everything is included at Camp Bow Wow, large play areas to roam and play with dog friends, spacious cabins and comfy cots, even live web doggy cams. Camp Bow Wow offers the best care and is the place to go where a dog can be a dog. For locations and more, visit campbowwow.com slash crime. And if you think you might like to own a Camp Bow Wow, maybe one in our neighborhood, you can learn about franchise opportunities at campbowwowfranchise.com.